The nail in the coffin! The Nail in the Coffin, episode number 94. Tom and Travis are recording on Thursday night. And uh, finally, for the first time in what feels like for, forever, we have a big Ohio State football game coming up this weekend. But first, Trav, um, it's also Halloween weekend. And uh, as you know, I am a graduate of Ohio University. So Halloween weekend always circled on my calendar. I believe you actually uh, came down to Athens once for uh, the Halloween festivities, right? Yeah, you were a fantastic host, I think, for two, actually. Okay. Um, yeah, you were a great host for a couple of wonderful Halloweens in uh, in beautiful Athens, Ohio. This might surprise some of our listeners, but uh, the details of those weekends are a little blurry for me. But uh, Yeah, off uh, the record. 100% <laughs> off the record. Yeah, uh, well, a good time was had by all, and we'll leave it at that. But, uh, yeah, you know, with, with it being a Halloween weekend, before we get into the Buckeyes, I was thinking uh, it's time... Uh, for us to get into Cleveland's scariest house of horrors of them all, uh, Brown's headquarters in Berea. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, we, we were especially snarky, I think, last week and kind of taking joy in just how much we've not talked about the Browns. But, um, you know, it, it, as close to an interesting game as they're going to have for the rest of the year, I guess, with them going to London this weekend, we get uh, breakfast and football. Um, that's kind of cool, I guess, um, relatively speaking. But yeah, uh, it's the a mid- very subjective term. Uh, yeah, roll with it here, okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's it's the midpoint of the season, um, and I, I hate to kind of go down this road, but uh, you know, the Browns are not the first bad team to be going over to London, and they're not the first bad team to uh, be going over to, to London and having a bye week coming up afterwards. Um, they might be the worst of them all, uh, given the fact that they're, what, now 1-22 in 22 over the last two seasons since this regime has, uh, you know, set up and, and, and got things rolling, uh, allegedly. But um, I don't know. like where, where do we even begin to discuss the state of the Browns right now? It's a team that's really hard to discuss because – the problems are so plentiful. Like there are so many, what is, all right, let let me ask you this. If you were to rank every aspect of the Cleveland Browns currently where they're at, would there be a single one that falls into the bucket of really good? Just any aspect of the Browns, any aspect of the Browns whatsoever, where you look at and you're like, yeah, I like that part of them. They're, they're, really what they're doing really well there um well there isn't one don't don't pretend i was gonna the only thing i would say is uh they're set up really well for the 2018 draft okay that doesn't count no that doesn't count because it does not that 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 is a product of being terrible everywhere else i agree Um, they're not good anywhere um we thought coming into the season that the offensive line would be really good because they spent some money on that, and you thought, okay, that might that might help the offense a little bit. Well, um, 
the one consistent this team has had over the last decade is now out for the remainder of the season. Joe Thomas is done for, um, which is a huge bummer because let's be honest, that guy showing up to practice every day was one of the like few shining, uh, shining examples of how to be a professional football player on that team. Um, yeah, and, and let's I say be... one of when I, when I say one of, I mean the, <laughs> um, so that's kind of a bummer. That's a, that's, that's a big, that's a big shot. Even if he, I mean, he wasn't obviously transfer translating to a lot of wins, but having him there every day was a big, I think a big positive in terms of showing the young guys how to be a professional football player. He's a grown up in a room that does not have enough grown ups. hundred percent. He, I mean, he is the, the cornerstone of the franchise. He's a man amongst boys. Um, and he's, he's a hall of famer who, despite all the shit they've given him over the last 10 years in terms of uh, the teams that he's been on. Um, the consummate professional showed up every day, ready to play and did his job incredibly well. So losing Joe Thomas is a big bummer. Um, ignoring the fact that, yeah, he had an incredibly impressive streak of consecutive snaps that is now done for. Um it's almost like that salt on the wound, right? Like they were already really bad. And then they just threw this other thing in there that obviously we've been taking Joe Thomas for granted for the last several years as this guy who's going to show up and do his job every week. Um, now he can't. <laughs> so it's, it's like this team that already had very little going for them now has somehow even less. Losing Joe Thomas, I mean, it hurts on two levels. Uh, you saw immediately, uh, from a football perspective, a team that was extremely bad got markedly worse in that Tennessee game last Sunday. And just look at the overtime possessions. But Brian Arakpo spent as much time in the Browns' backfield as Isaiah Crowell or Duke Johnson. Um, it, you know, I, I saw on uh, on Twitter one of the Browns' beat writers said, Spencer Drango... Is replacing Joe Thomas. Now, he might be playing left tackle, but nobody replaces Joe Thomas. No. Um, on a lot of levels. And, you know, just a lot of what you had said there in terms of where he, you know, just what he's represented and just the way he's carried himself and just being a good soldier through, you know, when he's had every right in the world uh, to ask out <laughs> or move on to other, you know, uh, other opportunities, greener pastures, whatever you want to say. Um and it's just a, a team that does not have a lot of that. And I just, the fundamental problem to me, and, and believe me, there's no wrong answer when you throw out the question, what's wrong with the Browns? But to me, it comes down to a a culture and um, just having guys that, that do it the right way and, and know how to win games. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I have all the answers in that front. I've, I, I, stopped in a NFL locker room a couple times when I was, you know, working at the paper or whatever, but, um, you know, that's not necessarily my jurisdiction, but you know, when there are steadying veterans on a team and, and you see teams that have winning cultures that even when players change and there's turnover, the foundation is there. And, and he's one of those foundational pieces. And, um, you know, I, I just that losing him on that level is just that's especially crushing because I mean they need that now more than I think they probably ever have. Yeah, the stability that he provided was just 
it's not it's it's not easy to find. And you look around the league, even even the really good teams in the NFL, um, a lot of them don't have um really strong offensive lines, and particularly a really strong, good you know all pro level left tackle. And it's one of those positions that obviously isn't a it's not a glamour position, but it's widely accepted across the league as, you know, one of those positions that's incredibly important that you be good at. Um, it's the reason that for a long time we saw left tackles going top one, two, three overall for several years in a row. So the fact that the one guy we had who was as steady as they come, as reliable as they come, a future Hall of Famer, one of the best in the league at his position, really the only guy on the team that that fits that description um, is now out for the rest of the year. That's a big shot, um, especially considering how how much they've struggled struggled in in you know every other position of of the game. Here's the thing that that scares me. You know, I just I think about like the Cavs, for example. And, I mean, you know, we see them do stupid things like kick away that game last night against the Nets. Obviously, they're they're still not perfect, and they're not a model. <clears throat> they're not a model franchise, necessarily. But when LeBron came back in 2014 and had a couple championships under his belt and saw how an organization like the Miami Heat operated... I think you heard a lot of stories about how he started changing things within the Cavs organization, and it became a systemic thing. You know, I, I can't remember who it was, but in one of the previews this that I read before this season started, one of the veterans that came in this year was remarking about how, you know, players get in early before practice. They're putting in the extra work. And, um, you know, that while they're still not perfect as an organization, it's a night and day difference from where they were. And I just wonder who who's ever going to be the guy that's going to do that for the Browns. I mean, you'd like it to be a player. You'd like it to be your best player, but it doesn't have to be. You know, it, it can be somebody strong in the front office that can kind of start setting the pieces in place and bringing in the right players to carry out your vision. Um, you know, it could be a coaching staff. And I just, you know, I and – I'll be a hundred percent. You know, I, I'll tell. I'll own it. Like when they put this group together, and you know, when they announced Hugh Jackson as the coach, what was that? January of sixteen. Um, you know, I'm. You can go back and listen to the archives of our show. I was. I was high on him. I. I thought it was going to be a good move for them, but um, nothing that I've seen in the year and a half that this regime's been in place, um, like. I don't, I don't see it right now, and that's that's scary because you know, it, without that, like, what do you have? Yeah, I mean, we were both pretty high on Hugh Jackson. I think because it was the first time in our, you know, the modern, this current franchise before, obviously before they got moved and came back and whatever. But the, this current iteration of the Browns, it's the first time that they got the coach that you know, some other teams wanted. It wasn't like their eighth choice. They didn't, you know, explore every option possible and have to settle for somebody. They got a guy that some other teams wanted. Um, Hugh Jackson was not, you know, some 
bottom of the barrel choice, like your, you know, your Mike Pettins and your Pat Shermers of the world. And that's not to say anything about them because they were putting in, in, in a shitty position as well. So who knows how good they could have actually been, but they got a guy that some other teams wanted and it was the guy they wanted. And I think in general, everyone looked at it like, okay, we finally have a guy who's well-respected, um, considered to be a pretty damn good coach throughout the league. So maybe this is the right choice. And we all kind of agreed with that, and that's fine. Um, it's it's hard to really – so I think that makes it hard for me personally to peg a lot of the recent struggles on him because, because the roster is so terrible. It's hard to really determine how much of it is his fault. It would be interesting to see – what he would do in in a slightly better situation with you know what i mean i because I, I, I slightly that's the thing is it only needs to be a little it, it feels like it only needs to be a little bit better yeah but it's like, the so thing terrible is, that it's impossible to evaluate right right and, and the thing is like i don't think this is all his fault but I think that given a bad situation, he has done things that have made it worse. Um, I think you look at the quarterback room, I don't understand what the plan has been, um, you know, especially this year. I mean, the first year, I'll I'll give them a bit of a pass because that was, you know, the 2016 season was really about clearing the decks and, and kind of setting the pieces to go forward. Um, and you know, you could, we could certainly get into everything about what the front office did or didn't do in the draft. When you start getting into guys like Carson Wentz and Deshaun Watson and so on and so forth. But with like the quarterbacks they had coming into this year, like, you know, why was Brock Osweiler getting as many snaps as he did in the preseason? You know, how does Cody Kessler go from, um, you know, being inactive to, to playing, I mean, Kevin Hogan gets a, a shot at starting. Deshaun or Deshaun uh, Kaiser, he's going to be our starter. We're going to ride with him, you know, until we don't. But then we're going back to him. But then we're going to pull him in the middle of the game. Um, you know, I, I'm not the first person who's made this observation, but it's incredible how many quarterback changes they've had through seven games when none of them have gotten injured. You know, it'd be really funny if someone put all the quarterbacks onto a jersey. <laughs> That'd be something, right? You display it somewhere that everybody yeah, in town yeah, could yeah. like walk by and see it. Yeah, put it in a big window somewhere. I don't know. Just list them all down on the back of a jersey. That'd be hilarious. That idea's got legs. Yeah, how come um, no one thought of that? No, I, somebody did though. In the spirit of Halloween, I I, I saw that uh, there's a couple that has a graveyard of Browns quarterbacks in their front yard, just tombstones with everybody's name. So okay, that's uh, very good. seasonal. Uh, I, will, I will tip the cap there. Um, Kudos. But yeah, I mean, just stuff like that, little in-game decisions. Uh, again, these are not seismic moves, but just things that make you scratch your head and wonder, are you putting the team in the best position to win every Sunday? Like the one this past weekend that just everybody was losing their mind over was uh, Tennessee was in Browns territory and the Browns declined a 15-yard penalty. Yeah, I don't even want to talk about right. it. Right. And again, these are these are, you know minoring uh, minor issues and and I'm not not going to dwell on uh, a call here a, a penalty there uh, things like that I mean it's just it's 
just, you know, something that is indicative of the bigger picture here. Um, and I'm sure probably some of it comes down to the fact that he's probably feeling the heat. You know, I don't know how many people survive one in 22 to start their coaching regime. Um, no matter how much rope they were told they were going to be given when they started. Um, and I'm, I'm sure he's feeling the heat right now. Um, yeah, the, the def- declining the penalty on, so what was it? It was third and one. There was a penalty. It would have been, you know, third and 16 and Hugh declined to make it fourth and one. Maybe, maybe one of the worst, uh, I mean, it's hard to really lump penalty moves into like normal game planning or, you know, calling a game, but maybe one of the worst moves I've ever seen in a game before. And obviously if they got the stop on fourth down, it doesn't look as bad, but you're basically flat out saying, I don't trust my team to hold them to less than 16 yards on this play. Right. And if that's the case, like, what are we doing here? What, what's the point? Exactly. (laughs) And maybe let's be honest. Maybe that, maybe that instinct is, is valid. As the coach, you can look and say, you know, my team kind of sucks. I don't think they can stop them. But it's still third and 16. Um, you're going to keep some points off the board because if uh, if you do hold them, say you keep them, say you hold them only 14 yards, <laughs> they're still going to kick a field goal. Right. Um, I it, Nothing about it really makes sense. It's one of those moves that's just kind of like infuriating. Um Speaking of things that don't make sense, why is Kenny Britt still on this roster? That is maybe the most confusing thing of this season. Maybe the most, um, when you look at everything that, if you're watching this team, here's what you need to do. Um, cut Kenny Britt is at the top of the list. Because not only is he not performing on the field, he's not trying to perform on the field. And... He's instilling a whole lot of bad habits in your young players, it seems like. And I'm, you know me, I'm I'm not one of those guys who really buys into the whole, uh, um, I don't even know what to call it. I don't want to say culture, but in general, I'm not the guy who buys into the fact that, oh, you need to, you need to cut this guy to make an, make an example or whatever. I don't really buy into that a lot of times this guy should be nowhere around anybody who you want to be a player for you long-term. I mean, if there was any kind of, if there was any kind of production whatsoever on the field to justify the pain in the ass attributes that you're getting off the field on a team bereft of talent, maybe you could talk me into that, but you're not getting anything on the field. Um, And he's not trying to give you anything. Let's be honest. If you watch it, he's not he's giving you zero effort. If he was out there busting his ass and he had a solid work ethic, you know, where he showed up and played hard, okay, whatever. You already committed to paying him a bunch of money, keep him around because he'll set that example for guys. He's not even giving you that. And that's not something that, you know, is hard. That's not something that re- requires anything from anyone else. All you have to do is show up and play hard, and he can't even give you that. Like he should have been gone. I'm surprised 
I don't know if he made the trip to London or not, but... He certainly wasn't looking forward to it. Did you see that story today? Yeah, and that's... that's <laughs> Finally like, talked to the media, and it was just to say how much I hate London. <laughs> that's one thing I'm actually not going to pile on him too much about. I honestly... I'm kind of under the impression that the NFL players do not like this London thing and are kind of all in agreement that any chance you get, um, talk shit about it. Like, I, th- I think that might just be unanimous agreement amongst the players. Like, shoot this down and make this stupid idea um, be exposed as, exposed as such. So and that's, the one, that's the one thing that Kenny Britt has done that I'm not going to crush him for. And the Browns, um, you know, I think as an organization, they are doing something pretty cool. Like all their non-football people who work for the team, um, they're getting sent over there as well. They get to travel and, and check the game out. I mean, it's a pretty cool once-in-a-lifetime yeah, experience. Yeah, sure. certainly parts of it that are pretty cool. But I think and overall I, as an NFL initiative, I think it's stupid. Well, right, but I was going to say for the players, like what the Browns are doing, their itinerary, they're flying, I believe, right now. As we record this, I think they took off in, uh, an hour ago and they're going to fly overnight, sleep on the plane, get up, do like a walkthrough type practice tomorrow. And then um, you, you get Saturday to you know do your final preparations, play the game early Sunday, and they're flying back on Sunday night, even though they have the bye coming up the week after. They're not even staying there on Sunday night to you know, unwind and get a chance to see anything. I mean, it is in and out and and the absolute bare minimum for those players amount of time that they need to be over there. Um, Other teams have done that. Some teams have gone earlier in the week. Um, Honestly, I got to say that given the fact that they've been doing these London games for 10 years now, and I think they started with like one a year and now they're up to doing like four. Um, and the fact that it's mostly bad teams that get sent over there, it's kind of a miracle that the Browns have gone this long without playing a game in London. <laughs> I think that's fair. This is It's kind of funny that, to note that this is the Browns' uh, national game this season. And it's on NFL Network. It's not even on one of the actual networks. It's on cable. Yeah, I mean, national is obviously a very subjective term these days, but right. <laughs> um, yeah, every other team, I don't know if it's every other team, but a, a vast majority of other teams get, you know, an actual national game on a TV network. Um, but the fact of the matter is, if you're a Browns fan and you look at it, you're like, oh, what the hell, we don't get, you know, we don't get a national game. If you're honest with yourself, they don't fucking deserve one. And, I'm, you know, a lot of people were complaining that they're losing a home game. I think it stinks that it's a game against Minnesota that would have been a home game because the Vikings haven't been here since 09 and the way the schedule works, they won't be back here for another eight years. So they're basically going to go 16 years without playing a game in Cleveland. Um, but the fact that the Browns are losing a home game, did you see how many empty seats were there in mid-October? Like that was a late no, December. No, I didn't because I was in the Muni lot till the end of the third quarter and didn't watch a single play of the game last week. There, I hope there were a lot of other people out there because I can tell you they were not oh, we in the seats in the little, stadium. We had a hell of a little tailgate going, man. Yeah, we had a great time. We had okay. a great time. At no point, at no point, there, there's people at our tailgate that had tickets. At no point did any of them think to themselves, "Yeah, I should really get into that stadium and watch this game." You didn't miss much. 
No, I don't. I I believe it. But that's the thing, though. Like that's a crowd that in years past, even in bad years, that you would not see until mid to late December when you're getting around the holidays and people have other things going on. The fact that it was a reasonably nice day out and it's mid-October, we're still in the first half of the season and you're already at well below 60,000. Thrown in the towel. Yeah, it's... If you lose a home game this year, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. I don't know, like, who's benefiting from playing in a half-empty stadium like that. So... Yeah, 100%. um, But yeah, I... I don't know. I, I we're not going to dwell on the Browns forever because we got much better things to talk about. But I, I'm going to be honest, man. Like, I wanted to look forward to this game this weekend, and I'm I'm going to watch it just for the novelty of it. But when you hear the comments of the Browns players, and you just think about like where this team is, and the fact that now we you know know Joe Thomas on the offensive line, and no Miles Garrett playing um, on the defensive front. This this has a train wreck written all over it and has all the makings of a game to me where everybody that goes on the plane over there is not necessarily on the plane coming back. Yeah, I mean, the London games over the last several years have sort of been known as that game where, you know, you go to fire a coach. Right. <laughs> um, a, lot, a lot of coaches and I, I don't know what the number is and it might be it might just seem higher than it actually is but it seems like you know a lot of coaches go over there and don't come back employed bingo um so when you look at a team that is what one in 22 one in 23 over the last year and a half um it would make a lot of sense is that the right move i don't know i'm not totally convinced that hugh jackson's the problem um i think I think the the problems are a little too uh, a little too widespread to blame on one guy. So. I, I will I will say this: whether it's after this game on Sunday or it's after the season, I think the Haslam's really wanted to finally be able to settle in for a long term plan and stick with a regime for several years. And I I. They have a rep, you know, Jimmy Haslam has a reputation for, you know, cleaning house or, or firing coaches and, and changing the structure of the front office every other year. And, you know, by all accounts, I mean, and just logically speaking here, I don't think that's something that, you know, a moniker he would like to have. And, you know, I'm guessing very badly wants to be able to ride through this, but, um, you know, I'm not cheering for people to, to, to lose their jobs, obviously, but I will say this, um, this whole notion of, well, you, you can't clean house again, because if you keep doing that, nobody's going to want to work here. I think that's crap. I really do. Like if you're somebody, I don't think that's the reason people don't want to work here. I think think that's the thing. I think there's definitely an argument that people don't want to work here. I don't think the fact that you fire your coaches regularly, if there was, if there was even one guy in a front office position or a coaching position or any position within the Browns, um, non-player division, so to speak, um, in, in football operations that has been let go, and made the Browns come back to really regret it. 
I don't that that becomes a totally different conversation. Like if you're anybody who's worth anything and, and has any kind of stock, and you could be, uh, you know, you've got potential. I can't let the constant turnover scare me off if I'm that person because it's not like any I, all those moves. I mean, the mistake wasn't getting rid of any of those people; it was bringing them on in the first place. I think you're probably right. I don't know that it's it's hard to look at all these hires and say that yeah, those were all the wrong guy though. It feels like that's not fair to some of them. Some of them probably are. Some of them probably were the wrong guy. Um, some, oh, some of them were definitely the wrong guy. Well, yeah, okay, that's right. <laughs> some of them were definitely were. Some of them definitely were. We don't need to name names, but you know. No, no, you know, <laughs> you you know the goddamn guys. Um, some of them, though, I feel like were brought in and are treated as the wrong guy never really stood a fucking chance let's be honest um Shermer is the name that jumps out to me um because he only had a season and he got two years Chudzinski was the one that only Chud, got one Chud, year okay Chud's the guy I was thinking of yeah I don't know if he's I don't know if he was the guy either but I don't really feel like he ever got a legitimate chance to to determine whether he was or not I agree uh, and and you kind of heard that from the players when it happened um, and part of me just thinks when I look at these guys, I'm like, yeah, firing guys every year or two doesn't work. Like, no matter what, you're going to have to start over and you're going to have to rebuild and rebuilding takes time. It doesn't happen in a year or two. So if you decide that's what you're going to do, you have to give them more than a couple of years, but a year, a year or two from now, if they're not winning, you're going to fire him and you're going to do it again. Like, it's this vicious this vicious cycle that just can't be corrected. Well, here's the difficult Let's thing. Let's just suck it up and say, okay, yeah, you haven't shown us that you can do it. We're going to give you more time. Here's the, here's the difficult thing. The most important thing that the Browns have right now is the 2018 draft. <clears throat> they've got a ton of picks. They've got a ton of high picks. And they're, they very realistically could have the number one overall pick again. You, you have to get that draft right. You have to do well in that draft. And you have to put yourself in the best position to do well for that draft. You know, Hugh Jackson's going to be, fairly or unfairly, on trial for another nine games this season. Probably. Assuming he makes it through the entire year. You, you will have things that you can be judging him on. You know, do you see progress in the players? Do you see, oh, I don't know, wins, crazy things like that. The front office, they do the bulk of their work, you know, that we see in the offseason. There's, I don't really know what Sashi Brown or uh, Dee Podesta can do between now and that Thursday night in late April, early May, when the first round of the draft starts to enhance their resume. I mean, the field, the product that they have put on the field for this year, you're not going to have any wholesale roster changes to the team this season. I mean, this is your team and you know, you know what you've put together for this year, you know where you're at. I guarantee you, they thought that they were putting their team in a position that it, you know, maybe not necessarily a playoff contender, 
this year, but better than last year. We haven't really seen any progress, I don't think, right? Yeah, I mean, in general, that... in general, you don't see wholesale changes, period, in the NFL. No, it really, it I, you haven't with the Browns either when you really think about it in the last few years. Like, Ray Even Farmer. the teams that do a complete overall, it's not. It's not really. It's not nearly as significant as you think. Well, I was. I was going to say like Ray Farmer got promoted from within, and when Ray Farmer was let go, I think Sashi Brown was promoted from within. Like obviously they brought uh, De Podesta from the outside, and the, and the coaching staff was changed. Although Chris Tabor some, somehow seems to survive every single coaching staff change, but that's the a story immortal, for another day. But the immortal Chris Tabor, <laughs> literally, he's he's unbelievable. I think, he, I think he's the uh, owner of the. Uh... The Elder Wand. He's the. He was going to say he's he the spiritual successor to Wayne Fonts as being a Rasputin, but. Um... <laughs> uh, but no, I think in general, you can't make that big of a change. And coming into the season, I think the Browns brass was generally of the. Um, of the opinion that it's not about wins and losses this year. And that's what it should have been. But as the losses pile up, I think it gets harder and harder to stick to that. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, okay, maybe we're not expecting 10 wins this year, but it's got to be more than 0 and 7 at this point this season. I just, I would love to be a fly in the wall for the conversations that are going on in uh, in the scary house on Lou Groza Boulevard right now um because i just i wonder like what are they looking for between now and january what 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 i mean if things just play out the way they play out now um are we willing to ride ride out the storm here and and you know take this thing into uh 2018 intact are there already wheels in motion trying to make some adjustments as is? Um, I don't know. I think it'll be uh, interesting times and uh, you know, just uh, cross your fingers that you can get through this weekend uh, relatively unscathed across the pond because I just don't have a good feeling about it at all. I'll tell you what I do have a, a good feeling, though, um, about College football Saturday. Let's talk Buckeyes. Yeah, it uh, it's I I think it's probably the biggest game of the season. Um, not just for Ohio State. I think just in general, it has the uh, biggest ramifications. It's not um, not necessarily the highest uh, rankings head to head. Um, I don't remember exactly what Ohio State Oklahoma was, but I think it was probably higher than what this one's going to be but in general um in terms of the overall landscape and the impact that will have on the college football season i don't know that it can get much bigger than this one well let me ask you this so i i will admit i have seen far less college football this year than i have at pretty much any season in the last decade just you know family stuff going on and it feels like every saturday just flies by anymore so i'm going to need you to kind of catch me up on on the landscape here a little bit but, um, you know, it, it seems to me, Ohio State, I mean, we talked about the Oklahoma game, and they've the Buckeyes after that have pretty much been off the radar. I mean, they, they haven't had a real opponent since then, have they? I think that's uh, – I don't know if that's totally fair to say. I think they kind of get um, 
I think there's a lot of teams in the Big Ten that kind of get a bad rap. They're not near. They're not nearly as bad as people say they are. Now they're not. I'm not gonna say they're good. I'm not gonna say they're good, really quality opponents. But I think a team like Maryland, Rutgers, Nebraska, um, are better than people give them credit for. Now that's not to say that they're a legitimate threat to beat an Ohio State, but um, Ohio State manhandled all of them. And those are teams that had, you know, had Ohio State maybe gotten a little bit of a brief scare from them. one of those games where Ohio State doesn't pull out uh, the game till like the second half and, and pull away there. Um, it's It becomes one of those games that no one really talks about. It says, oh, yeah, Ohio State got a little scare put into them and they end up pulling it out. Um, we, you know the game I'm talking You know the type of game that I'm talking about. Everybody, those happen once or twice a year. Um, sure. I don't think the I don't think the schedule is as bad as people say, but it's also not a, a great barometer of how good Ohio State is or isn't. So we've sort of been building up to this Penn State game, and Penn State has been a fucking powerhouse this year. Uh, has looked even better than people expected. So this game I think has even more weight behind it than people thought it would originally. Well, let me ask you this: this is a perfect segue to where I wanted to go next. Obviously, Michigan is the traditional rival for Ohio State. I mean, that's the game at the end of the season every year. Um, but, I mean, Michigan fell on hard times until Jim Harbaugh came in. And Sparty, Michigan State, really kind of filled the void for a few years there as being Ohio State's big rival in the Big Ten. And they've kind of taken a little bit of a step back, given where, you know, the fact that Penn State pulled the upset last year and they come in this year with such momentum, and I mean, they're, they're what, number two in the country. Is this the big game now for Ohio State? Because Michigan, again, seems like they're starting to spin their wheels a little bit. For now it is, for sure. I mean, now it really depends on the outcome of the game. One thing to think about, last year Ohio State had a two-week stretch where they played Wisconsin and Penn State both of those games were on the road at night against teams that were coming off of a bye while Ohio State obviously was coming off of, you know, legitimate games. So both of those teams, Wisconsin and Penn State and back-to-back weeks had sort of a built-in advantage and it showed up in the Penn State game. Now there's there's a couple couple issues I have with the Penn State game last year, but I'm not going to I'm not going to dwell on the past. Not going to do that. Nope. I, I will I'm encourage not, everyone to go gonna, visit the archives at thenailpodcast.com. I'm not going to go. bring up that terrible pass interference call that didn't get called that should have determined the game last year. Not going to bring that up. Not going to talk about it. Doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> but if Ohio State beats Penn State this weekend, the Michigan game becomes incredibly important. If they lose to Penn State, the Michigan game, in terms of overall landscape of college football, means very little. It will still mean a lot because it's still the Michigan game, and if you're an Ohio State fan, that game matters no matter what. But if you're looking at the overall goals of the Ohio State team this season, it it it, it, it comes down to this Penn State game. That's what it that's that's what it'll all boil down to. And obviously there's, there's a couple decent games on the season. They've still got to play Iowa. Um, Michigan State, Michigan afterwards. But if you're looking to be a Big Ten champion, you got to beat Penn State or you're not going to have the chance to do that. So 
Um, as far as the overall um, magnitude of the game, in terms of overall meaningfulness, and if you don't include, you know, the emotional aspect of rivalries, because um, as much as Penn State would would probably love to, they're never going to catch Michigan in that respect. Um, beyond that, um, it's as big a game as you can get. Let's be honest. Sure. Beyond the the team implications here, um, what does this game mean? For JT Barrett, I've seen people throwing around the idea that, you know, his legacy is on the line in this game. And that, to me, feels a little melodramatic. But at the same time, when you think about just the fact that, you know, he was not the quarterback that finished that Michigan game a couple years ago and he was not in the Big Ten championship game or either the playoff games. I mean, Cardale was the, the, the QB that ended up winning the title. And then we know how things have played out since then. Uh, he didn't. He didn't finish the Michigan game a couple of years ago, but they were up big when he went out, and he was a big reason they won it. Sure. But to your point, what's 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 JT Barrett's signature win in his career? That's in my that's opinion, really where I'm going. In my opinion, it's probably the Michigan State game from his freshman year. Which, if you're listening, you may not remember that they kind of came out pretty slowly. They were down a little bit, um, and then about midway through the second quarter, just blew the fucking doors off, just ran Michigan State off the field. That was a primetime um, game, wasn't it? It was a night game. It was an incredible game. Um, it was sort of a coming-out party for Devin Smith. Um, JT Barrett, obviously, was was a hell of a player that day. Played his ass off, looked awesome. JT Barrett's got all the numbers. All the career accolades are there. But he doesn't have a big stage, meaningful game that everyone remembers. Um, unfortunately, that's just that's just what it is because he's got a, a handful of losses. Like you look at the losses on his resume, there aren't that many, but they're all kind of those games that you would like to have seen him win, right? So it, it just kind of. You look at it and you're like, okay, when's he going to win the big game? When's he going to go out on a huge stage where everyone's watching and say, you know, this is how good I am. Talk about me more. Because since the Oklahoma game, this this is sort of a bold statement. And I'm not sure if, if you're listening, you may not watch a ton of college football. You may watch Ohio State and you may have questions about this, that, and the other thing. Since the Oklahoma game, JT Barrett has been the best quarterback in college football it's true the numbers support it the numbers support it even even beyond how much i believe it um he's been dominant and yes he hasn't been against the best teams in the country but no one else really has either like this is sort of that lull in the schedule where you're only maybe no one's played more than maybe one good team since then yeah, it does seem like this season has had more of those. This is a good weekend to go rake leaves type games than uh, yeah, there's <laughs> past years. Every week. There haven't been many. There there was one week, I want to say it was the week after Oklahoma, um, where there was like four or five really good games. But other than that, you're not glued to your TV every Saturday. No. There's not a ton of good games out there where you're like, oh, I really got to catch this one. 
those haven't existed. So all those other players, they've all been playing against pretty me- mediocre opponents too. Um, and of all those, um, JT Barrett's been the best one. This right. week's going to be the one where he has to do it a little bit more though. Right. All right. So tell me about Penn State. I mean, Saquon Barkley, the running back, has been awesome. Um, I think they've got a pretty decent quarterback too. Give me the uh, give me the rundown. What do I need to know about Penn State? All right. So I'm not sold on their quarterback in general. Um, Trace McSorley. He's one of those guys who is the ultimate Penn State quarterback <laughs> that you've heard about for the last ten years, right? A lot of moxie. You always hear that fucking word and. <laughs> He just looks like a guy who plays hard. And he's one of those guys that if he's on your team, you like him. But if you're playing against him, you're not scared of him. He'll pull a couple plays out here and there where he just kind of wills them to a um, wills them to, to a first down that they shouldn't get or something like that. And if you're going against him, he'll he'll infuriate you. But overall, if if you are if you're in the Ohio State defense and you say, yeah, um, we're going to stop Saquon Barkley. Trace McSorley is the guy that's going to have to beat us. You love your chances. Um, I don't. They don't have a ton of weapons as wide receivers and whatnot. Passing the ball, the passing game is going to struggle. But the fact of the matter is, Saquon Barkley's really fucking good. Um, he's not a guy you want. He's he's just not a guy you want to go against. Um, he does everything pretty well. I think he he is a slightly better I think he's a slightly better running back running the ball than Zeke was. Um I don't think he's quite as good at the other stuff. I don't think he's quite as good as a pass blocker. I think Zeke is probably the best pass blocking running back I've ever seen. Um as a as a receiver they're probably about the same. Barkley might be a little bit better. Um they use Barkley a little bit more than they did Zeke. I don't know that that necessarily means he's better, but they do use him more in that respect. Um, overall, he's he he's one of he's one of those guys. There's only been a couple over the last handful of years, but he's one of those guys that should be a top four or five draft pick in the NFL draft. So he does everything well enough, and is and is really really excellent at some things. Um, if Ohio state is able to say, we're going to, if they're, their their strategy coming in will be, we're going to stop Saquon Barkley and make everyone else beat us. If they can execute that and force, force those other guys to beat them, they should have an easy day. Honestly, that seems like it's going to be easier said than done though. Yeah. Oh yeah, it for sure is. Um, funny stat. Um, the top, um, top rushing running back in the game on Saturday isn't Saquon Barkley. It's J.K. Dobbins on Ohio State. Um, Barkley is a guy that's a little more versatile, I think, than people think. He he gets a lot of hype, and in general, he is very well viewed as, um, you know, this this do-everything, universal, amazing running back. Um, As a running back, he's good, not great. But he can do everything. He can kill you no matter where he's at. 
which is something that I don't think Ohio State has seen a whole lot of. So that's where it becomes, like you said, uh, easier said than done to stop him. Um, he, he's probably right now probably the front runner for the Heisman. Um, that can change. That can change on Saturday, though. I think if JT Barrett has a big day and Saquon Barkley doesn't, and Ohio State wins, I think JT Barrett catapults himself uh, catapults himself to the front of that line. Um, and he can easily be the guy that's the front runner for the Heisman after this week if it keeps it up. Um, but like you said, that could be easier said than done. I, I expect I expect Saquon Barkley to have a good, not great game. I think it'll be kind of like, um, I don't know if you remember, shit, probably 10, 12 years ago, Larry Johnson, who was the running back at Penn State, who had a big day against Penn State, but or a uh, big day against Ohio State was a finalist for the Heisman, had a big day against Ohio State, but they couldn't really do much anything else, and they lost Ohio State. Hmm. Um, I expect sort of the same thing, where they might, in my head, I think they need to, you know, block out Saquon Barkley and make everyone else beat them. I could also see them going the other way and saying, all right, we'll let him do his thing. No one else is going to beat us. And... I think that's a riskier way to go because I think Saquon Barkley is more likely to beat you than anybody else on that team. But it it, it really depends what they think, you know, what they think they're the best best route to attack him is. And there's nobody else on that team that scares me other than Saquon Barkley on so, either side of the ball. Uh, all right, so I just looked this up. Ohio State favored by seven. Are you surprised? Yeah. It was nine and a half. It was nine and a half before. So Vegas actually released a line before the Penn State-Michigan game, and it was nine and a half, wow. um, it, which seemed like too much to me. They're um, begging you to bet Penn State here, aren't they? Yeah, Penn State was actually favored by nine and a half over Michigan at the same time, simultaneously, um, while being favored or being a nine and a half point dog to Ohio State. Nine and a half is a lot. Nine and a half is a lot in any game between ranked teams um, for the number two team in the country who is undefeated and has been playing, you know, coming off of a huge win. Um, it's one of those lines that, that you look at. And in my head, I just tell myself, uh, that's a, that's a gambler's line. That's just for gamblers. It's not indicative of what people actually think is going to happen with the game. They're just trying to move equal action. Well, right? I was going to say the fact that it's moved two and a half points tells me there's been a lot of action on Penn State, but... Well, I honestly think that that movement, I think, is more a result of the game from last week. Okay. So it was before the, it was before the game. Ah. It was before the Penn State-Michigan game. They already had a line out at nine and a half. Penn State obviously blew the doors off of Michigan, and they said, okay, we need to adjust it a little bit because all of this action is going to start coming in. Okay. So I don't think that movement is necessarily tied to the to the gambling. But in general, I I think – I just think Vegas isn't sold on Penn State. And it's one of those lines that to me, seven and a – what is it? You say it's at seven? Seven. Seven and a half? Okay. A touchdown – if you're not a gambler, a touchdown's a lot for a close game. That's that's a that's a pretty big line for um, if two teams are fairly evenly matched and most most people think you know these are 
these are you know pre- pretty equal matchup seven's a lot and in most cases i would bet that most action is on penn state i haven't looked to see how much the line has moved over the last week um but i don't i'm not convinced that I, if i had to gam- if i had to bet on it i'd probably take ohio state to win but i'd probably pick penn state with the spread cuz sure. seven's a lot seven's a lot i think it's going to be one of those games that's close um it wouldn't shock me it wouldn't shock me either way if either team came out and you know sort of ran the other one off the field i don't want to see that um i want to see a good game unless it's ohio state that's doing it cuz then i'm cool with that <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's one of those games that i think it's going to be really close and seven's a lot so if if you're a gambler at home I think you can't really can't really go wrong with Penn State, but who knows? I mean, I'm not going to call that your lead pipe lock of the week or anything. It's not a it's not a lock exactly. (laughs) I think if I was betting, I'd take Ohio State to win, Penn State to cover. All right, and hope for an entertaining game. Fair enough. How do you feel about the three thirty kickoff? I was a little surprised at first to see that, um, but then I understood why. Uh, you know, with Fox doing half the Big Ten games, I guess they jumped on this one to be one of the games that they're doing. And uh, they've got the World Series on Saturday night, <clears throat> so couldn't do a primetime game if they wanted this on Big Fox. So they had to put it in the afternoon. They, it's kind of a rarity at this point to have a big-time college football game not under the lights. I don't hate it. It's got a little I bit mean, of an old-school feel to it. The only thing... The only thing that that I really hate about this game um, on Saturday is the Ohio State uniforms. <laughs> we did talk about those last week. They're but... fucking dreadful. They're terrible. They're the worst. I, I've I've not been a huge fan of their alternates over the years, uh, but these are by far the worst. Um, I don't mind the three thirty start. I kind of like it, honestly. Um, I think the night game thing needs to be brought back down to earth a little bit i think it's a little it's being a little overused at this point to where it doesn't really feel that cool or special anymore like it used to it used to be awesome when your team was in a night game now for ohio state i think it happens you know four times a year maybe used to be like once every couple of years if you were lucky and and now it's just like you know, if you're playing a decent team, you're going to be on at night. And oh, I, yeah. I think that's kind of tired. I don't, I'm not crazy about that. Well, aspect look at, look at like Washington. I saw their coach, uh, Peterson kind of got into it with a little bit of a pissing match with ESPN, but what was that? Three, four weeks ago, their schedule, they play, I think like all but one game or something like that. Just some crazy number of games at seven thirty West coast time. So, I mean, they're they're playing like super late East Coast time, and you know they're not getting like any day games because that's when ESPN and um, whoever you know Pac-12 Network or whatever that's that's when they want those games on so they could fit them on their TV schedule. And the Pac-12 teams, you know, like that's Washington especially because they're one of the better ones that really kind of getting screwed. I honestly think Washington. I think there's certain teams that. I'm going to throw a rock line at you. You need to know their role and shut their mouths. <laughs> like, if you're Washington, you should embrace those because you need that exposure. Um, I don't think Ohio State needs it. I think Pac-10 teams specifically 
need to embrace that because um, a team like Washington, they already have issues with exposure and attention and, you know, being front and center. When they had those chances to be on national TV, um, especially on like a Friday, I, I personally love those games. And I think a lot of college football fans love those games um, when there is a decent team playing at a time that's kind of unconventional, right? So if, if I'm at a bar on a Friday and Washington is playing somebody, I think that's a lot cooler than if I'm watching fucking – Oh, Boise State or some garbage team. I well, I was I was gonna Boise say there. there but. It almost sounds a little bit like you're saying the the Pac-12 is like a rich man's version of the MAC. Like, no, I I just think Pac-12 doesn't <laughs> Pac-12 doesn't get the national exposure that they probably deserve. They are a premier conference. They have a lot of really good teams. But if you look if you look historically at the best Pac-12 games back even back when they were in the Pac-10. They're those games that you're watching when no other game is on. It's a game that's that starts at ten o'clock on a Saturday or it's Friday night game when there isn't a Big Ten game or an SEC game or a Big Twelve game on to go ahead ahead uh, head to head with it. I will give. I think that has benefited them a lot. I think the fact that they have that time slot exclusively to them has helped them a lot over the years. Well, I, I was going to say, I, I do think that outside of Washington, the rest of the conference seems like, I, I do think they are kind of embracing it. They've made Pac-12 yeah. after dark the, uh, the the official or maybe unofficial hashtag of the conference on Twitter. Yeah. Um, that's kind of, be, it kind of had like a grassroots movement, almost like Maction. Um, so to see the conference actually kind of steer into the curve on that's been kind of fun. So. Yeah, and I think the coach complaining about it just kind of rings hollow to me. Like, that's exposure you should embrace. You should enjoy it. It's a good chance for you to show off for people that wouldn't otherwise watch your games. Um, so that that's that's where I stand on that. I I, understand, I can understand where he's coming from as a coach, but I think big picture-wise you need to sort of own that and embrace it because I think it's better for your program long-term if you do so. Fair enough. All right. We are closing in on an hour here. Anything else that you wanted to cover before we shut it down? No, I don't think so. Um, you got your Halloween costume together? Are you dressing up this year? I don't know what I'm going to do, man. I got. We tried to dress our dog up last week as a lobster. I saw um, that on the gram. That was, uh, yeah, was fun. Yeah, like that killed it on the grams. <laughs> um, but it was, it was like almost 80 degrees, so he's sitting there staring at me like... Take me home and get me out of this thing. Um, so I don't know. We'll do something. We'll probably, when the kids come around, we'll put something on. Fair I enough. I don't know. Figure it out. What about you? Well, I. What's the little lady going as? Oh, I think she's one of the Disney princesses. I can't mess with that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that'll uh, that'll be a good time. But no, like, I think my office is actually doing like a Halloween party on Tuesday. And, oh, nice. Well, yeah, but, like, everybody, I think, is supposed to be coming in dressed up, and I'm not, like, get dressed up in a Halloween costume for the office guy, so. Okay, I've, I hear I'm you. down with the treats, and, uh, you know. There's a reason I always have a an Ohio State tie and sweater vest. <laughs> you can go as Jim Trussell on demand anytime you need to. <laughs> I keep it in my closet at all times. 
Oh, a timeless classic. Oh, it never loses. Never <laughs> loses. Never disappoints. It's fantastic. I believe you were what the uh, the shark the when you came down to Athens, right? Oh, I was I was a hell of a shark. That was that was well, tremendous. Those were the days. I don't know where that thing went, but man, I was was all over the place. Land shark. I think my favorite one that I did was when I was the Heisman Trophy. Oh, that was strong. It I was, was there for that. I think I dressed as the colonel that year. That's right. You were Colonel Sanders. That was great too. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I like the Halloween or the uh, the Heisman and my roommate Timmy having the uh, the gold football helmet that he could loan me. That uh, that 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 was just a nice added touch and you know so instantly is, recognizable when you're on Court Street. Just strike the pose and everybody goes nuts. Hundred percent. But there is a if you're looking, um, if you're not sure, you know, you're, you're sitting around listening to this in front of a computer. Find. Um, the Minnesota Golden Gopher. His name's Goldie. He every the game before Halloween, he <laughs> pulls some uh, costumes together for the game. Last week, he had eight different costumes. Oh my! All of the, all of them were incredible. So go look up um, Goldie the Gopher on Twitter at Goldie the Gopher. All one word, no spaces, no underscore anything. G-O-L-D-Y, the gopher. He has a rundown of all his um, costumes from last weekend. He had, at one point, he went as, like, the dancing hot dog from Snapchat. Um, (laughs) He went as, uh, I think, Grease was one of them. Robin Hood was one of them. The the Night King from uh, Game of Thrones. Like, they're all on there. It's incredible. Um, and I went back and looked, and apparently he does this every year, and I don't know how I missed it for this long, but it is fantastic. Like He immediately rose to um, number two on the college football mascot power rankings for me. Number one is obviously Puddles at Oregon, who <laughs> can't miss, like superstar. Um, Goldie definitely made his name known. He's he's chomping at the bit there to, to, to climb up even further. So go check that out. He was fantastic. The effort that they must put in for these is just something you wouldn't expect for a, you know, subpar Big Ten mascot in Minnesota. But really good stuff. All right, you've given me some homework. I'm gonna have to go check this out. And check I've got out. high hopes here. There you go. All right. Well, um, everybody else listening, after you get done checking out Goldie the Gopher, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Stitcher, or really whatever app you are listening to podcasts on on your phone. And if there's a podcast listening app that we're not on and you're using, tell us about it, and we'll start posting our show there too. Our website where you can stream every past episode of our show, dating back all the way to number one in October of 2015, is com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash thenailpodcast.com. And if you're on Twitter, we are at the Nail Podcast. I don't even remember the last time that I plugged the Twitter account on here, and somehow we have more followers on Twitter than we do on Facebook, which kills me because we get way more traffic from Facebook, and we don't really tweet anything other than like when new episodes are going up. But uh, all the kids are on Twitter these days, so um, oh, on the Twitterverse, go uh, go follow us on Twitter and, and make sure you know every time we get a new episode out. So, uh, 
There you go. Travis would fun this week, bud. Uh, should yeah, be a good stuff. time with uh, the Buckeyes and, uh, you know, say a prayer for the Browns, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you're a gambling man, no matter what you pick on Saturday, you can't blame me no matter what happens. So <laughs> nothing that has been presented on this show should be taken as actual gambling uh, advice. It's your own money, suckers. <laughs> Make that clear. Noted. Noted. No, but uh, all right, let's uh, let's let's get out of here. For Travis Julie, I am Tom Valentino. It's been the nail in the coffin, and we will talk to you again soon. Yeah, don't give me that pressure. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with breslow the business of sports betting podcast